Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey there, welcome. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Welcome into episode number 254. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball here alongside Carrie Haskell. Good to have you along for another edition of the podcast. A couple of talented performers visit with us this week on the program. And the second half, actor and singer Haley Sales will talk with us about a new album, a lot of current acting projects we want to know about, all kinds of good stuff. And up first, well, one of our favorites on the radio show and here on the podcast. He's an actor, he's an author. He's a storyteller, and he is a delight whenever he visits with us on downtown. We had a chance, as we do every few months, to catch up with the multi-talented Stephen Tobolowski. Here he is on downtown. Well, how have you been? Oh, it's been, it's been wild. It, it, I got a, another grandbaby. Wow! Congratulations. So I got two. And and so there's been a lot of grandbaby duty, and on the home front, uh, I I got a sudden like rain of jobs all of a sudden. That's fantastic. Yeah, which is fantastic. But a lot of it is because they've all been delayed because of COVID. And now they're saying like, okay, let's do this now. So now <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going off to all these uh, far off ports to, to do some work, which is good. Uh, I have to tell you, you, uh, well, you, you made me do something I wasn't sure I'd do, and now I'm hooked because of you. I finally watched my first Hallmark movie because uh, I loved Haul Out the Holly. You were great. <laughs> so should I? Okay, so here's the secret. <laughs> the thing that's fell right in my lap now, Haul Out the Holly turned out to be one of the most popular Hallmark Christmas movies ever. So <laughs> this morning, I... They're saying they want to do Haul Out the Holly 2. Of course they and do. And they just <laughs> sent me a script. And so I, I got, today I got all these like contracts. Can you sign this? We're going to send you off to, you know, because we discussed where we shopped. Yeah, this back on the at last Salt show. Lake City when it was hotter than blazes, right? 100. So it, this will also be shot in Salt Lake City. <laughs> we'll start in rich in three weeks oh my i just got the script in three weeks we start out haul out the holly part two and it is a delightful script very funny and uh i i but it won't be as hot as it was before <laughs> but I, for, for the people who have not seen haul out the holly and you can see it i have a tell now for when you can watch to know how hot it is now you can't look at the actors because we're all dressed in all the big coats and hats mm. and suits and gloves and everything in the 111 degree temperature <laughs> in Santa Utah. <laughs> oh, no. But it's the extras. If you watch the extras, they will not wear gloves. They'll wear the coats. <laughs> they'll wear the hats and the scarves, but they have to. But they won't wear gloves. And that's how you can know how hot it is. Oh Well, I, I can't wait to see. I, seriously, I loved it. I mean, Lacey... Lacey Chabert, she's the queen of Hallmark, but then you had Ellen Travolta. It was a terrific cast. Oh, it was a great cast. We had a great time. And so it's no big surprise that Haul Out the Holly Part 2 will have all the same gang back. 
and uh, all all the same characters back, and it's a year later, and that's all <laughs> I'm going to tell you about all the complications that happened. Well, but it, when you did it, we, we sit here on the air after you got <laughs> off the air. We say, you know what's going to happen with this? They're going to love Stephen uh, in this movie, and he's going to become a Hallmark regular. Uh, well, I tell you, you know, I do love working with Hallmark. You know, you work with a lot of different people out in the world. And the thing I love about Hallmark is they really know what they want. Uh, it's completely professional from beginning to end. You have great, co you know, for me, I love the crew. You, the, the temperature, you know, when you take that temperature of that roast to see if it's done, it's the same thing with any kind of film or television. It's the crew that tells you if if what it is and, and the technical people, the crew, the costumes, the sets, all that stuff, those people are first class and the producers are first class. Everybody's really nice. Everybody's super professional. Also, I saw you worked with, I think, one of the funniest people in the business. What was it like working with Cherry O'Terry? Oh, Cherry. Uh, <laughs> first of all, we had a great time. We Cherry and I had a great time. I have to explain that movie, which I think they they've changed the name a few times, <laughs> was in the height, the height of COVID. It was terrifying. It was in the part of COVID where everybody had to wear like, like surgical gowns. You know, we're wearing masks. So Cherry and I, we are in this house and we each have our own room. We 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 each have our own masks, but whenever anybody had to do any group scenes all the crew that it looked like we were shooting it on mars but it it was terrifying but we were all happy to do it because it was the first time we were stepping back into the world of this fatal this disease nobody knew at mm. the time if you go back rich nobody knew at the time how bad COVID would be? Is it a fatal thing? Because it was just in China and all these people were dying. And now it was in America. And now we decided they closed down uh, one day at a time, you know, because they couldn't have an audience first. Mm. And then Sony closes it down. And then I get this offer to do this movie with Cherry. And we are scared to death. But you know, <laughs> you can't keep an actor off the stage, as they say. <laughs> so we did it, and we just had a great time. So as did, great as you can have. Yeah, with all those preconditions. I say you did an episode of uh, George Lopez's new show, too. Yes. Yeah, now, that was... <laughs> I had a great time uh, with George. And I have to say, a lot of the people not a lot, but several key people from one day at a time had moved to the George Lopez show, including Deb Wolf, who was one of our key writers at one day at a time. And now she's gone over to George Lopez as a key writer and a producer. So Deb had asked me if I would do this episode of George Lopez and George and I know all the same people. And so we were back in the dressing room and we had the most fun. I, I think the <laughs> one he can handle an audience like nobody I could ever see. But we, we have a very short time in sitcoms to learn our lines. And so in this I had 
we we had five day rehearsal and then you do it in front of a live audience. And so I had this huge, you know, emotional scene with George where I'm talking about his son and my daughter and what I mean, his daughter and my son and what a disappointment my son is to me and how amazing his daughter Mayan is and how she's great. You know, you, you got to, and we're both drinking and we're both drunk in the scene. And I go, you know, just, you know, Dylan is, is such a huge disappointment to me. And, and, and George is going, well, he's not that bad of a kid. And we're going on. And then a voice comes out of nowhere saying, wait a minute, who's Dylan? <laughs> and I look and it's like one of the ADs. And I go, what, excuse me? You just said Dylan was a disappointment to you. Now the live audience is there. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah. And they go, who is Dylan? Dylan's not in this show. <laughs> and I'm going like, oh, that's right. That's not my son's name. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I said Dylan. And George said like, so <laughs> what? he goes, so why am I crying at this story? I, you know, I, I had it wrong too. I said, George, the same thing will happen to you in this show, I promise you. So let's just do this again. Let's do this again, and we'll get it right this time. And sure enough, in the next scene, George made a mistake. <laughs> and I said, okay, George, now we do it. Your, we'll do it again. We'll do it right. But that was so much fun. The George, he is so funny in front of a live audience. It's, he's just genius. It was wonderful. And now the Goldbergs have, has come to an end, but uh, boy, what a great run that was for you and everybody involved. Very surprising. Uh, the run, not not that it came to an end, but it, it ran for 10 years. Mm. And that's unheard of. Usually uh, a sitcom is considered massively successful if it runs like eight years. Five years is considered like you're, you're a hit, but eight years is crazy, but they ran 10 and it was so popular on so many different stations on the dial. And, of course, working, again, with all those people, you put in the Meet Thermometer. That's another show mm. where the technical people were so brilliant on that. Yeah. We're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky on downtown. I, I know you do a lot of voiceover work. And I, I saw, I know Carrie loved the initial, original version of the show. Uh, you've done some episodes of the new Animaniacs. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. That was, uh, God, it, it, all of these shows now have the hint of sci-fi because of COVID. That was like in the heart of COVID as well, doing Animaniacs. And I was told to go to this studio called Igloo Studios, which is right next to Nickelodeon. And I went into Igloo Studios and the whole place is deserted. And then there is a loudspeaker saying, please sit down and fill out the form in front of you. I'm going, oh, okay. So so there's this piece of paper there, fill out the form, and then they go, Stephen, we're ready for you on, on soundstage three. Go down the hallway, turn to the left. No humans yet at all. And I go into soundstage three, there's a microphone, and there's five TV screens in front of me. And suddenly the writers and producers show up. I didn't see a real person wow. on this job at all. And then when you left, you had to wash your hands and everything in case you got <laughs> COVID on you. I mean, it was it was like a, a science fiction thing. But I love Animaniacs. The, the, uh, it's a crazy. Uh, uh, that's uh, also Pinky and the Brain. Is that part of Animaniacs? Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's yep. oh, gosh, so funny. 
So funny. So good. Yeah. And I've told you this before. When when my son was a little bit younger, we used to watch The Loud House all the time. And that was yes. a terrific show. Now, did we talk about, you know, I just did two versions of the filmed version of Loud House. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, they flew me out to, uh, again, another... <laughs> a place where the COVID restrictions are very loose, out into Albuquerque, New Mexico. No. And there they have 11 little kids. I mean, and they're shooting it live. And they have a, a couple of, you know, important people that do the animated version, the voice of the, and they're acting here. And it was hilarious. We, we I did two shows for them there. And they threatened to have my my character come back, which would be a lot of fun. Albuquerque is a very strange. Have you been to Albuquerque? Well, I, you know, I think we were there. You, that was last fall, right? Because I think we were there at about the same time. I was oh. out there in in September broadcasting a football game. I I was I was there before I did the the haul out the holly. Okay. So for me, I was there late spring, early summer. Oh, okay. And in Albuquerque, I noticed they have no breakfast. They don't believe in <laughs> breakfast in Albuquerque. Uh, you know, when you have to go to work, you usually have to go to work at like 8 in the morning mm. or something, and you usually have to have breakfast before that. But the restaurants in Albuquerque don't open till 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. So you are out of luck for breakfast. But they're really big in terms of the nighttime drinking on the roof. Yes. They have these <laughs> rooftop bars, and boy, <laughs> those are special. You see the mountains, and the, you have your oh, little yeah. pina colada, very nice. It, it appeared to me, too, that, that you had to be at a certain income level to have any kind of lawn, that uh, most of the houses I drove by, oh. people had the, the crushed terracotta stones, but... If you got into the right neighborhood, oh, there's some grass right there. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, uh, yes. It, uh, grass is a very, is a rare thing in Albuquerque. And did you see all the Breaking Bad uh, sightseeing <laughs> tours there? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, a couple people on our on our journey went. I went actually to the Breaking Bad store because I was a big fan of the show. And oh, I had to, I had to partake in that. Yeah. I, now, I, the last month I got really sick really sick mm, you, and you were uh, telling me that with, yeah. not with COVID or anything but i lost my voice and i lost my hearing oh man and i still can't really hear out of my left ear uh so i could hear with headphones on and my voice obviously is back all that and the way i knew i was going down this path of absolute you know, what's happening to me is I decided I would start watching Breaking Bad. And I turned on Breaking Bad and I couldn't hear the show. And I got the, I have this new big screen TV and I had to turn the volume up to 100. Wow. Wow. Zero, 100. And I still had to put on closed caption. And so Annie came upstairs and she says, Stephen, what's wrong? Turn down the TV. The neighbors are going to be. So I couldn't hear it all. So I'm going back to the doctor at the end of this week to see if we can recover some of the hearing wow. in my ear. Yeah, That's Very also scary. not a show you want at high volume because you know, the neighbors will think there's a, a meth deal going on next door. <laughs> meth thing going on. I know. I know. It is a scary, one of the scariest shows I've ever seen in my life. Mm. It's really terrifying. Well, do you approach when you do a drama and you've done a number of them through the years, 
you approach them the same as an actor, whether you're doing a, a comedy or a drama. The best comedy comes when you're you're playing it straight and let the situations establish the humor. One hundred percent. You should teach acting and and, and, <laughs> and be out here and talk. It It's the same. You, you have to. One person wants to. There are three ki kinds of comedy in, in Hollywood, but I would say the biggest type of comedy is what we would call farce. And I call farce a comedy of intentions. And that is where things that should be important are, are not important, and things that are not important are made incredibly important. And in fact, ooh, well, people can't see this because this is radio, but this is a theory that was espoused by Sigmund Freud. And <laughs> Here is the book. Oh, Here see, is the book. And I comedy. was going to ask you, how, you must read my mind. I was going to ask you, what do you have on your bookshelf behind you that's interesting today? And there it is. I'm actually going to take a picture, get a Sigmund screenshot Freud, of this. <laughs> jokes and their relationship to the unconscious. And Sigmund Freud says the secret of comedy. Comedy is you make the meaningful meaningless and the meaningless meaningful. And that's mm. basically what they look at Seinfeld. Seinfeld guess, is all yeah. that. You have Kramer making ridiculous things meaningful. You have Jerry making very important things meaningless, and it's comedy. But what you have to do is you have to invest in the reality of whatever your situation is. You have to believe in it, whether it's drama or not. And and the comedy will come from the fact that you're making things that should not be important important. But you have to make them important from your heart and soul and mind. Did that what? That's what makes it funny. Do you still learn about your craft after oh, all these years? Yeah, all the time. And it's different to doing stage as doing film mm. and doing television because you have different rules. When you do television, especially if you do something like the Goldbergs, you don't have a lot of time to prepare each scene. And so you realize all you have to do is kind of do an improv with, of course, the great actors you have on the Goldbergs, you stay in character and you keep the scene going with full of meaning, full of everything, knowing that the director will say, okay, that's great. Let's keep that. Let's do it again and add this. And they'll keep building the scene that way. Uh, when you have stage, you have a long rehearsal period on Broadway. You could rehearse up to 10 weeks before you do a show. When you do like Lopez versus Lopez, you get the script two days before you have to start wow. working and <laughs> seven days before you shoot it in front of a live audience. So it's terrifying. But each each kind of each type of act film is the best because you have all of this time to work. And you could also go over things if mm. you make mistakes. So film is the best uh, for the actor in terms of nerves. That that's the best. But. What you learn is, is how important the truth is and, and nothing in terms of the less you could adorn the truth, the more powerful it is and the funnier it is. And also the more out there you could be in a comedy if you feel you're telling the truth. So that's the one thing you really get over the years is trust in the truth. I was working with some of my high school actors last night and I was, I was talking to them about you know, the challenge when you do when you do something that's that's got a little more heft to it is the difference between 
displaying an emotion and actually feeling and experiencing that emotion. What's what's a tip you would give young actors? How do you get to that place where you can feel the emotion and not just show what it is? The, the advice I would give to young actors, old actors, or any actor, <laughs> all of acting is not about emotions. It's about clarity of thought. If you know what your character, what is important to your character, and what you're thinking and what your goal is and what you're trying to do, you're going you're gonna to be emotional 100% of the time. But it's clarity of thought and keep digging in terms of what, what is important to you. And the more you hang on to that, it will open the doors and, and you'll be appropriately emotional at the right and wrong time. Never go for the emotion. And I feel sorry for women in this more than anything. I've, I've done a few law and orders and you see those scripts and they say, you know, the woman is in is talking to the police officer, the, the victim or whatever in tears. That <laughs> she's in tears and tears mean nothing. Mm. But, it, you, you know, if tears are not dramatic in and of themselves, what is more important is people try not to cry is what people do in life. Right. They try to take control of themselves. So if you are in the moment and if you are believing what you're doing, <clears throat> whether you feel yourself, I, I, here's a story. I don't think I told you this story. I was doing a Mornings at 7 on Broadway with Julie Haggerty. She was playing my mm. girlfriend on that show. And the show was an enormous success. We had run it for most of the year. Now we're going to move it to Los Angeles for three months. But we were closing the Broadway run in three weeks. And there's a scene, Ju Julie plays my girlfriend in this. And in this relationship, I've never told her I love her. And as Homer, I'm trying to say, I should have said something. I should have, I should have. And in the scene, I never say I love you. But I looked at Julie and suddenly I was a hundred percent in the moment of thinking like I've just had the most glorious year of my life on this stage with you. And I'm starting to talk and I realize I can't talk because I'm about to cry looking at her. And Julie looks at me and knows this is going and she doesn't say a word. She just stays there looking at me. And I keep trying to talk. And I can't. And I'm just saying, I, and then I start hearing people in the audience begin to cry. And there's, and we were on stage for about 12 years, but I guess it was probably maybe 30 seconds <laughs> of silence between Julie and I. And I got back on track, was able to finish the scene and get off stage. And people came backstage I could, uh, that night, uh, Different people, came, uh, Carol King, came, uh, people were coming backstage going, what was that? What was that moment on stage? And, you know, the people in the audience were moved, too, but only because they believed Julie and I were and were moved. Yeah. And so emotion has nothing to do with it. It has to do with clarity of thought, knowing what you're thinking and doing. <laughs> Unfortunately, that time, my thought wasn't about the play, but it didn't matter. It still is still fit. Is those moments, those lightning in a bottle moments, yes. one of the things that really appeals to you, because that is not likely to happen in a film or a TV production because it's the 
repetitive, you know, the repetitiveness that leads to that moment. Is that one of the things that really appeals you to stage work? Well, I love that in stage work. Now, now you have something going against you too in stage work is that you have a lot of rehearsal. So, you know, you, you may have that one great rehearsal where suddenly you're on fire and then you spend the next couple of weeks trying to chase the tail of the comet <laughs> and you never get anywhere. But when you work with, oh, what a great question. When you work with great directors, like I've worked with Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott Alan Parker, when you work with great directors, they try to put explosives in the process. They try to, they don't tell you all the stuff that's going to happen and they launch surprises at you while you're shooting. Uh, where I, I remember I was doing Mississippi Burning and Alan Parker, and I was doing, I was head of the Ku Klux Klan. I was doing the big racist speech where I was on stage and we had like 2,000 uh, extras in the audience. And at the time, I didn't realize half of them were actually in the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, God. That they had used their Klan cards as ID to be extras in this shoot. And so Alan Parker came up to me on stage and he says, so we're not going to go into the racist part of the speech. We're just going to do the beginning part of the speech. I'll call cut and then we'll go back to the beginning and then we'll send all these people home and we'll do the last part of the speech, which is really racist, but we don't want any trouble. And I go, yes, sir. So it's about, we started about two in the morning because usually when you shoot at night, you end up shooting all night. It's two in the morning. We have 2000 extras. We do the first part of my speech about 20 times. And then one time Alan doesn't say cut. <laughs> and I'm, you know, time 21, he doesn't say cut. And so as an actor, you have to keep going. And I start going into the racist part of the speech. And suddenly the audience starts screaming just screaming. They are so excited. Yes, yes, yes. They start stomping. They start clapping. One guy yells, you should be running for president. And all of these things start happening that I have to play off of on take 21. Wow. And Alan runs up on stage and goes, well, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Why don't we keep shooting this? And so let's not send them up. And so this whole surprise made that scene come alive. And Ridley Scott does stuff like all the time, surprising you. Okay, now we're going to do, and then you're not used to what's going on. And you're like, boom. And, and you're, you're freaked out. And, and Thelma and Louise, you know, I, I had a freak out. I, have I told you the Thelma and Louise story? Do you have time for that? You have not told us. And we certainly have time. Uh, so, so Ridley Scott is, is saying, I was head of the FBI on that one. See, I go from Ku Klux Klan to FBI. <laughs> and Ridley Scott says, all right, Stephen, so what are you going to do when you come into the room? And I said, well, I thought I would do the lines in the script. He goes, yes, yes, but other than the lines in the script, uh, what are you going to do? And I go, I don't know. Uh, take, And I'm thinking of Law & Order, one of my favorite shows. Uh, I'll take over the room. I'll do something to take over the room. And he looked, Ridley looks at me kind of, oh, well, all right, let's try. Uh, and so we rehearsed a scene and I did one where I came in the room and I said, uh, okay, Jenkins, uh, get over the phone. I want you to set up a wiretap on line one. So-and-so, I want you to set up outside surveillance on line two. I want you to do this. 
and I go outside, I'm thinking like, God, that's so terrible what I did. I mean, that was such a, you know, Ridley said, well, we'll try to shoot one. And I'm going, I'm standing outside the front door thinking I'm so embarrassed because, you know, you don't walk into a radio station, say, okay, Carrie, you know, turn on, turn on the volume of the microphone and here, give me a headphone. You know, professionals know what they're doing. And I think you, you've run meetings before Stephen, what do you do? And inside the room, I hear the assistant director says, everyone ready? Camera going. And he says, and I'm thinking to myself, snacks. That's what I do when I run a meeting. I, I see what people want for snacks. And Ridley Scott goes, action! And so I come in the room, and now I come in with all the FBI agents, and I said, okay, guys, I'm going to make a deli run. Now I'm going to have my usual <laughs> corned beef, a rye, and I'm probably going to have the cappuccino. Anybody else want anything? And all the agents look at me just like, and one guy goes, blueberry muffin? And I go, well, you want to toast it or not? Butter? No, you got to tell me, man. I don't know these things. Tell me. So I start writing down, okay, who wants coffee? Just raise your hand if you want coffees or cappuccinos. We got one, two, three, four, five. Okay. Anybody want anything like coleslaw? Okay. The coleslaw. Okay, fine. Okay, I'm going to call this in. I'm going to go pick it up. You guys do your thing. And I left. And Ridley Scott goes, cut, print. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is this one. You know, so it was this huge Terrible, horrible, but amazing surprise where I only did the one thing I knew that I usually do, which is take care of snacks when I'm running a meeting. That, that's what you, in film you're able to do is sometimes grab bits and pieces of real life and put it in there. I love that. Hey, Stephen, it's great to catch up with you. By the way, I noticed, too, not only do we match, but you're, you're sporting an L.L. Bean shirt there. Nicely done, making that Listen. main connection. I thought if I got the L.L. Bean shirt, mm. you know, because I've, I've been out there. I've been to the L.L. Bean store out there <laughs> in, in, what is it, Freeport? Free, yeah. yeah, Freeport. Freeport. Yeah, I've been out there is I thought it would make me look like a rugged individual. You know, a rugged, self-sufficient individual. <laughs> but I put this shirt on and it looks like I'm on Star Trek. Oh, no. Not I only know. am I on Star Trek, but I'm one of the red guys no, on Star you're, Trek you're that's going to get killed. You're not going to last. <laughs> that's that's more of a next generation uh red red shirt though right, they, those right. those guys were safe those guys yeah, were safe yeah, yeah, yeah. i will say you will survive because you're a rugged individualist that's the story there yeah. <laughs> bruce saying hi as well Stephen, yeah. thank you so much it's great to to talk with you as always hope you get that ear thing straightened out we we're on tap with the doctor on that in a day, and we'll we'll see how that works. All right, and good luck with all these projects. We look forward to catching up with you down the road and hearing how all of it played out. Absolutely. All right, thank you, Stephen. Our best to Anne. Yeah, bye bye, Rich. Bye bye, Carrie. Man, I, Carrie, I don't know what it. Every time Tobo's on, uh, he just takes us to a new place, and that was that was great as always. Uh, talking about you know acting and, and truth and comedy and all of that. He's just he's such a great storyteller but also just such a talented guy yeah he, we say this it feels like we say it every yeah. time he's on but it's because it happens every time he's on it's just a great conversation when he's here you just toss it out there and let him run with it and you're gonna have a great conversation Stephen tobolowski on downtown a quick word from our friends at cross insurance and then we come back with 
Singer, songwriter, actor Haley Sales next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Haley Sales, a little bit of her song, All This Love. She's working on a new album called Till the End that includes a song she co-wrote with actress Sharon Stone. She's got a couple of TV movies coming up. She's working on Lucky Hank, the AMC show with Bob Odenkirk. And we talked about that and more as Haley Sales visited with us here on Downtown. Haley, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's Wow, I feel really good about myself after hearing you say all that. <laughs> well, you got uh, you got so much going on. Uh, where to begin? Let, let's start with the musical side of things. Yeah. You're you're working on a new album called Till the End. Tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you know it's it's a labor of love. I I did two records with Universal that came out, and I worked on a third. And unfortunately, the president left the company right as I delivered the masters, and it was never released. So this album is my comeback after losing that last record and it's just i tried to be as transparent as possible this time and just do the music i just madly love which is you know like the 1940s kind of judy garland inspired music and uh yeah we we just finished the last mix and master and it's going to start coming out this year and I am so excited. <laughs> Among other things, a song that you co-wrote with Sharon Stone called Never Before. How did you two get together? You know, it was one of the beautiful angels in my life, a friend uh, around the time that, you know, my life came crashing down around me, uh, mentioned that Sharon Stone was interested in doing some co-writes. She, she'd written before, and she's a phenomenal writer, but she was looking to work w- with a woman. And... I, I guess he sent some of my music and she was intrigued enough to tell him that she wanted my number. And I forgot about it. I'm like, Oh, sure. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> just little me. And then, you know, about a week later I was just walking down the street in LA and picked up, you know, a blocked number call and I hear, hi, it's Sharon Stone. <laughs> uh, and uh you know the next week i she invited me to her house she had a beautiful grand piano in her living room and we sat down and it was my first co-write ever i'd just written songs by myself usually and i was kind of terrified i'd never written on the spot so <laughs> i'm amazed it went so so well she was so gracious and really really pulled out a the, the side of myself I, I tended to hide in my past, and I'm very grateful. Yeah, I, she's she's a beautiful soul. Watch the video, and I've watched it 
three or four times now. It's so great for all this love. It's it's beautifully done, and the mm. song is just wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know what's funny is that actually we filmed at this local little um, war memorial theater. I, I was actually on Vancouver Island in Canada during COVID, during the, the lockdown, and I we had no one to do a music video, so me and my two nieces, my teenage nieces, just went there and played with silkscreen. It was so fun. It was just, it was a really cool experience to to try and create your own content and do it in such a stripped down way. So that's thank you. I'm I'm so glad you like it. Well, you grew up in a musical family. Your dad was a musician and uh, played with people like the Ramones. Miles mm-hmm. Davis, The Grateful Dead. Uh, now, how could you not uh, love music? But <laughs> but I have to think that also helped you develop what it seems to be a very eclectic taste. Yeah, you know what? It really did. I, I feel so blessed to have been born into my beautifully wacky hippie family. From they, They're they both from D.C. My mom and dad, they met in high school, actually, high school sweethearts. And uh, they, you know, they the music I heard around the house was everything from... The, the gorgeous R&B that was coming out of D.C. at that time and mixed with, you know, my dad loved Dylan, he loved the Beatles, my mom loved the Supremes. And so I had all of that. And then for some strange reason, I was <laughs> such a strange little child, but I fell in love, as I was mentioning earlier, with the classic pop of the World War II era. And so in some ways I got all of the amazing uh, textures of rock and, and folk mixed in with that jazz classic pop so yeah i I mean they're my parents are definitely the reason that i am who i am we're talking with Haley sales on downtown am i right that it was a friend of yours who played you a judy garland album and that that just opened a whole new world for you yeah yeah you know it was uh we're you know we were being little kids i was five and dressed up like little you know witches and princesses (laughs) and she uh she popped into judy uh, it was even a cassette. Like it was old, like it was her mom's old music. And, um, I just fell in love. I, I mean, it was just this click for me. I mean, I'd, I'd been in love with music and performing and make believe up into that point, but something about hearing her, there was such a, um, a vulnerability mixed with passion in her voice. Of course I wasn't analyzing this when I was five. I was just like, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> but yeah, I, I uh, became pretty dead set and determined on being a songwriter and a, a performer and a musician after that. Did you have that sense, I wonder, even as a, as a little kid when you heard that, or maybe when you were older and you were singing those songs, where you, you had this moment of feeling like, I should have been born in a different time. <laughs> <laughs> I joke about this all the time. It's Yeah, you know, I, I do truly feel like uh, it would have been a very... I, it would have been easier for me to have been born in that time. However, kind of cool to be in this time because I'm really excited to reintroduce all the the textures and beautiful melodies and and whatnot of that era. And I like to call it, it was a very bold romance to that time, maybe because of they were going through such trauma with World War II and whatnot. But I'm really excited to introduce it because it's kind of been put you know, in the easy listening category. And personally, I view it as everything but that. But yeah, getting to write songs that feel like that, that are very modern. It's, I'm excited to see if, if I can open up some doors for other artists to dig into it. 
Well, and, and what I've noted in listening to your music, too, is that your, your voice is, is timeless. It's, it is all of those styles creating this, this beautiful new uh, combination of uh, the old and the new. And, and I think if I put a song on and said to somebody here at the station, when do you think this song came out? They might not have any idea because it just has that, that wonderfully timeless quality to it. Oh, thank you. I mean, that, that means a lot to me. It's, it's this, this is the first music I've really allowed myself to do that is the stuff that I, you know, some of these songs I even wrote as a kid, but I kind of put them on the back burner and hid them because I was such a misfit. You know, I, I couldn't perceive that people would want to listen to them. So to hear you say that and, you know, to think people might genuinely want to hear it now, it's, it's, it's really exciting for me. So I'm glad you like it. Well, we could talk just about your music, but there's so much more to your story than that because uh, uh, you've got so many wonderful acting projects coming up. You started young. You you grew up on stage. Was it uh, Romeo and Juliet at age 12? Was that the first time? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've been doing local kind of, we'll call it summer stock theater, even up to that. But I, uh, yeah, I I grew up really fast. Like I, I'd say I was 5'7 by 11. And I kind of just looked 19 or 20 already. <laughs> and so I saw this, you know, this this call for an audition. I was like, I'm going to go to the university and I'm going to audition. I'm not going to tell them my age. So I went and auditioned and I, I thought I'd get a chorus girl or, you know, like whatever, very small part. And it they gave me Juliet. And I... I told them I was 16 until the day we opened and I finally told them, <laughs> so, you know, and I, yeah, I was, I had been madly in love with Shakespeare, probably the romance of it, you know, the, again, the poetic romance of it, but yeah, that was, um, I really, I got the bug on stage that time and haven't stopped. See if I can remember it. It was years ago that I did it. A many a morning had they there been seen with tears, augmenting the fresh morning's dew, adding to clouds oh. more clouds with his deep sighs. Yeah, I, I played Romeo's dad years ago. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome! I I just I totally fell in love with the Romeo too. <laughs> I was like, I'm in love. I wrote him a a book of sonnets. Oh wow! And he still has it. We're friends. And he's like, oh, I'm not giving that back. I'm holding on to that. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. I want to see it. Oh, my gosh. It's probably so embarrassing. But, uh, you know. I, I wanted to ask you about a film you made a while back, uh, uh, Stand, where you played Canadian activist um, Helen Armstrong. You were nominated for the Leo Award from the British Columbia film and TV industry. What was that like for you? That was really incredible. And also, the first time I'd been given the opportunity to to play a real person and it felt like a lot of responsibility especially considering how incredible this this human was helen armstrong uh i just loved it It, first of all i love period pieces and in some ways getting to step into her shoes re reaffirmed in me like a certain strength because again it was around the time i'd lost the record and and all this stuff was falling out falling around me and so to get to play her at that time was really important to me and uh and and just being in musicals i mean it was everything about it was a perfect storm for a really great experience uh a real good friend of the show he's been on a bunch of times with us is uh, richard schiff did you get to work uh, with him at all on the good doctor i didn't know but oh he seems he seems amazing <laughs> <laughs> that that show is so awesome i, I was lucky to be a part of it 
Uh, well, coming up, you've got a film on Tubi TV, uh, Corrective Measures with Bruce Willis. And everybody's familiar, of course, with the, the struggles uh, that Bruce is dealing mm-hmm. with right now. Uh, what was the experience like working on the film? Um, hearing about everything that's been happening with him broke my heart because to me on set, he treated me like a daughter. He went out of his way to be incredibly gracious and welcoming. And I, if there was something going on at that point, I definitely didn't notice. He was very present. I mean, he walked across the room. It was my first, my first day shooting with him. And he's like, hi, I'm Bruce. I'm like, Hi, Bruce. I know who you are. I'm Haley. <laughs> and uh, he was just lovely, and and we'd improvise a lot, you know, during the takes. In between takes, he'd just sit and banter with me, probably because he knew I was losing it. <laughs> so excited, mixed with nervous to be uh, getting to act with him. But yeah, he's he's a genius. He's one of those actors that just getting to do a, a do a scene, do a conversation with him. It was worth decades of acting lessons, you know, because they're so he was so present and just nothing changes when the camera rolls. What you see is him. It's beautiful. But, yeah, it's so heartbreaking to hear that about him and his condition. Got a new film coming to uh, Amazon Prime as well. What can you tell us about just for the summer? Well, that was fun. I have been a a rom-com geek since the beginning (laughs) my mom and i always used to watch them together everything from you know pretty woman to his girl friday and so to get to lead a rom-com was a dream and we just had so much fun the director let us improvise a lot and the two women playing my like the grandparents the grandmothers i should say just amazing and so hilarious we we had a fantastic time we filmed it in in vancouver canada actually yeah, it's it's a cute little rom-com. You should watch it. <laughs> and you've got a recurring role in a, a brand-new series on AMC. I've, I've seen the first two episodes, and I love mm-hmm. it, uh, Lucky Hank with Bob Odenkirk. That is potentially one of the most amazing experiences I've had to date was getting to work on that show. I, I hope for season two. It was every single actor involved was both hilarious and incredibly sincere and and i mean it took everything in me to just not die laughing when we were (laughs) doing our scenes uh and and bob was incredibly supportive he left a little note on my first day and welcomed me personally to the show and came up introduced himself you know he was he even like when i was doing my first scene came up and was kind of telling me what his vision was for it i it was oh i I still can't believe that i'm a part of it because I mean, I don't know how I am with all these comedic geniuses. <laughs> I just, my job was just to not laugh. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a great show. I've I'm on episode three actually, so I haven't seen when I come in yet. But I love it. I think it's such a brilliant combination of like honest honest humor and drama mixed together. That's the best combo in the world right there. Well, uh, we wish you continued success. Can't wait for the album. Do you have a potential release date yet for till the end? I don't know. We're, you know, my team and I are starting to figure all that out. I think you could expect a single late summer, early fall, and then it'll just kind of snowball from there. (laughs) It'll it'll all start coming out once. Well, that's great. Well, it's it's wonderful to get to talk with you. I love the music. I love your acting as well. And we wish you nothing but continued success. And hope you come back and visit us again, maybe when the album comes out. 
Yeah, that'd be amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to chat with you. The very talented Haley Sales with us on Downtown. Our thanks to Haley. Thanks, of course, to Stephen Tobolowsky and to you for being with us this week. Downtown's brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.